0: Welcome to Hacking the Self, integrating East and West, ancient wisdom with modern medicine. We'll explore holistic approaches to hacking your physical, mental, and emotional health through the prism of science, technology, and spirituality.
1: Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. I'm recording this podcast from Koh Samui, Thailand, where I'm studying with... Two of my favorite teachers, Richard Freeman and Mary Taylor, both of whom were guests on this podcast,
2: both of whom are
1: amazing teachers and fantastic people who I'm lucky to study with and If you haven't heard those interviews, I would strongly recommend checking those out. This were episodes Nineteen and twenty because Mary and Richard are both full of wisdom. And have a lot of insight to share. I want to start today's podcast before I kind of go into the overview of what today's episode is. I want to begin by thanking several people who have decided to support the podcast on Patreon. And I have to say, after having a Patreon page for a few months, I started being a little more active on it and t- trying to raise awareness around the reasons for starting a Patreon page in terms of. Helping make this project a sustainable one, and also you know providing some bonus content to subscribers. And just in the last month, there's there's really been an upsurge in people wanting to support the podcast, and I really really appreciate that. And I just want to thank those people. So, Juan, I believe I already thanked you in my previous podcast, but I just want to thank you again, Juan Palenzuela. Also, want to thank Christine, No, Craig Daniels, Andrew. Brundage and Andrew Bray. Apologies if I mispronounced anyone's last name, pardon my ignorance, first name, but I just want to say thank you so much to all of you for supporting the podcast as well as to all the people who are already supporting the podcast on Patreon. It's just such a huge help um, in terms of making this a sustainable project, like financing the production costs that I have for the show I outsource the production of a show to a team, which has really freed up my time and makes the quality of the audio a lot better. And so I just want to say thank you so much to those people. For those of you out there who are enjoying the podcast, there are other ways I'll say to support it as well. If you're willing to support it on Patreon, that'd be great for just $2 a month. You'll get access to early interviews and bonus content and If everyone to the show just gave a dollar or two, it really would go such a long way to making the project. It would make the project totally sustainable. So thank you so much to those of you who are supporting and are considering supporting. And there are also other ways to support as well, though, like writing a review on iTunes, which is really helpful, or whatever podcasting platform you're using or sharing the podcast with your friends and family. So thanks so much again to all of you. So... Turning to today's episode. I should say, I was about to say, it's really the first time I'm going to talk about addiction. I mean, we've definitely touched on it before in some of my episodes on psychedelic therapy. We've talked about some of the uses of psychedelics in in helping people to overcome addiction. And so we've touched on it there in interviews. I'm thinking of people like Stephen Bright and also... Spring Washam, and Rachel Harris and Dennis McKenna. But this is really the first episode that I'm doing that's really focused on addiction. And it's with a great guy who I'll tell you more about in a minute named Paul Garrigan, who works with mindfulness and addiction, a rehab center in Thailand. But I want to start out on a personal note, just because this is a very relevant topic, personal topic for me. There are a lot of people in my family who have struggled with addiction. I grew up with both my parents talking about how they grew up and had parents with addiction. Both of their parents were, their fathers were people who struggled with alcohol. And my parents had been through Alcoholics Anonymous for that reason and didn't drink when I was growing up. Other people in my family have struggled with mainly alcohol issues, been through AA. I myself have definitely struggled with substance abuse issues, which I talked about a a bit, but not in too much depth, you know, and my bio for both, I believe on the Hacking the Self page, but also the yoga page. I talked about moving to Thailand, you know, in 2010 and being at a point where I was just totally neglecting my physical and mental health. And uh, I believe I've even said drinking too much, and really turned my life around really quickly through getting into meditation and yoga. And it pretty much totally stopped drinking within a couple months of moving to Thailand. But I hadn't elaborated on it too much. And it's not like I feel the need to do so at length now. Perhaps I'll do that in another interview or interview on someone else's podcast or a blog post later. But I will just start by saying it's definitely a personal issue to me for various reasons, that it affected me as well as members of my family. And it also continues to affect people that I know and love and care about today. I'm thinking of other friends of mine who I know are struggling with substance abuse issues. Some of them conscious of it and trying their best to, or at least trying to do something about it. And others of them perhaps... Not at that point yet. But something I'm very cognizant of, I grew up in an area, St. Louis, Missouri, where in a part of the town where actually I would say drinking, it's a big drinking town generally. But yeah, it was very much a heavy drinking culture, and which I think is probably true in many places in the Midwest and the South. And it's been very interesting when I've been away, especially since I've giving up drinking to go back to places where there's a really heavy drinking culture like that. Not that that doesn't exist in many places, including Thailand, because it certainly does. To really see what that's like for people who are in the grips of it. Once again, maybe some of them semi-aware of it, others not, but I feel nothing but compassion for them for sure. And I'm very conscious of trying to frame things in a way where not sounding judgmental or condescending because that's not my intention. I think that's incredibly unhelpful. I also think that most people are able to use, and the research actually shows this, most people are able to use most drugs, including ones which I could honestly find no recreational value in. I think alcohol and marijuana in moderate, moderate doses could lend themselves to, you know, for people who can use them it's fine but actually even for some of the harder core substances the research shows that most people who use them don't end up addicted which is quite surprising actually because that's certainly the impression we're given about people who try something like cocaine or heroin but the research shows that quite clearly that it is not the majority of people it's something like I'm going to go with numbers off the top of my head here but Let's say it's something like of people who try the following substances end up getting addicted. Injecting heroin might be about 25%, maybe 23%. Cocaine is maybe somewhere between that and alcohol. And then alcohol is and marijuana are, well, I've seen different studies showing at different places, maybe alcohol at 15. Some studies show marijuana around that Number at fifteen, and, and others show it lower, like seven to ten percent. But either way, it's a minority of of people, at least who use it once and end up getting addicted. Um, and many use it multiple times and don't, which is surprising. And so, I think that's a fascinating discussion: is who ends up getting addicted and why. I'm not going to pretend that we come close to answering that question in this episode. And I'm not going to pretend that I am qualified to answer that question. I think one thing that we do make, I'm actually researching more about it because it interests me. I've read some books over the last couple of years, but more recently, but I'm very new and a student of it as well, newer to learning the science of addiction. But as we'll talk about in this episode, and Paul has a lot of experience, Paul Garrigan, Addiction's an area where a lot of people have very, very strong views, and people have certain theories about the way things do or do not work. But Paul's own journey, what she talked about, is becoming a little bit less interested in the particular theories and more focused on what works for people. I think one thing that is generally true, whatever the topic, it's good to approach things with an open mind. It's healthy to acknowledge that we have strong views about certain topics, but whatever that topic is, we're best served by holding those views lightly, listening to the ideas and experiences of others, acknowledging that everyone's different, having a commitment to being evidence-based and being guided by scientific research. And we can all find studies to cherry pick and choose our position, but really looking at the quality of different research, what kind of study are they published in peer reviewed journals, aggregating large amounts of studies to find what's statistically more reliable or to find trends or patterns in evidence. But I think there are, it's fair to say there are many factors and there's no simple reason. You know, one person I've been reading recently who's fantastic and who I would love to have on the show is. Gabor Mate. I'm reading his book in the Helm of the Hungry Ghosts. And he talks... I'm still reading through it, but he talks a lot about the role of trauma in addiction, which I think he shows quite convincingly people who go through traumatic experiences, especially during childhood are particularly susceptible to substance abuse. I also think that there's so many factors. You know, He talks as well about people, for example, have something like ADD or ADHD, which I have been particularly susceptible to substance abuse. I would say anyone who struggles with delaying gratification is someone who's going to be susceptible to it. But there's so many reasons. I mean, for one thing, I'm a big believer in this as someone who's a history teacher. We can't underestimate the value of and the role of context and culture. I think culture plays a huge role in Shaping our beliefs on what we think is normal or appropriate or right behavior. And I definitely think that certain cultures can promote a culture of bad habits and unhealthy habits or a culture of good habits and healthy habits. And individuals make choices within those contexts. They are not puppets being pulled by strings, but our environment does have an impact on us. Our genetics and our chemistry does have a big impact on us. The experiences that we have very early in childhood, and Dr. Mate talks about this as well, not only trauma or abuse, but just we need very healthy attachment and very strong connections to our parents and caregivers, particularly in the first few years of a child's life. So there are many factors. And... Not going to pretend that we come close to answering all of those in this show, but we do start to get at some of the causes. Paul shares his own story and he talks about some of the common experiences with his client. He talks about his views on addiction and why he has ultimately come to be a little less satisfied with seeking out and being on this search for sort of the best theory that explains it all. It's safe to say that Paul's view about addiction is largely shaped by a Buddhist perspective, which I would definitely say is similar to my own. I certainly wouldn't pretend to have any hard and fast views. It would be foolish to do so, especially when I'm very new to learning about it. But I'll say generally, I I do think the Buddhist view on desire makes a lot of sense, which is that all of us experience desire and we all experience craving, whether it's not just drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling, but the primal urges that all humans have around food and sex. And I don't think when you look at something like, say, obesity rates or infidelity in marriage, which of course is only capturing people who are married and saying nothing about the huge group of sexually active people who aren't married and having their own issues, that people struggle with cravings. You know, desire is a powerful force and I don't think it's simply a matter of we're addicts or we're not addicts. I think we all struggle with desire and it's a spectrum and it's different for each of us in terms of which desires kind of really hook us. But I think Buddhism teaches us that the goal is not that desires are going to go away. Or not that thoughts are going to go away in meditation practice. It's it's learning to be present with your thoughts and feelings, whatever they are. Not wishing for them to be different, just learning to be with them. And similarly with desire, it's not about wishing you didn't have desire. It's about a craving. It's about changing your relationship to the cravings. Realizing that to have a thought means you don't have to Identify with it and meaning that you have a craving doesn't mean that you have to act on it. And if that sounds easier said than done, it's certainly not easy, especially for those of us who really feel hooked by something and particularly have some of these environmental factors that I mentioned earlier. But I absolutely believe in the power of people to develop attention and to develop self-awareness and to learn to relate to your emotions and to manage your emotions and impulses more skillfully. I think that's absolutely what mindfulness practice teaches us. It teaches us self-awareness. It teaches us more impulse control. It teaches us emotional intelligence. And like anything else, it comes through practice. Just as you're exercising your muscles through physical exercise, we have to do the same thing with the quality of our attention as well. And Paul has a lot to say about that, not only about addiction and what can help with it, but how mindfulness practice helps people as well. So with that said, I'm going to introduce today's guest, Paul Garrigan. Paul Garrigan is a mindfulness teacher and the mindfulness program manager at Hope Rehab Clinic. In Thailand. He originally comes from Ireland. He spent his 20s in England, where he was a registered nurse, and then moved to Thailand. Paul struggled with his own addiction issues, which he talks about in detail in his book, Dead Drunk, which I'd encourage people to check out. You can also read about his story on his website, paulgarrigan.com, in his bio section. He also has numerous talks on other podcasts and also on the podcast for the Hope Rehab Clinic, which he helps to co-host. So Paul is a fascinating guy and I really thank him for his time coming on the show. I really enjoyed my conversation with Paul. I enjoyed really thinking through some of the questions I had about addiction and sharing some of my thoughts and getting feedback on them with him and just really listening to what he had to say about the power of his own story and overcoming very severe alcohol addiction, as well as what he's learned about what really hooks people and what helps people to break through their addictions as well. So I enjoyed my conversation with Paul and I think you will as well. Thank you for listening. And now I give you my conversation with Paul Garrigan. Paul, I just want to begin by thanking you again for making the time to come on the show and and speak with us. I I really appreciate it.
2: Thanks very much for inviting me, Adrian. So I've given folks
1: a bit about your background in the introduction. And what I was really thinking for today, what, what we could do is I'd love to kind of get into your thoughts as someone who spent a lot of time working with addiction on really two big facets of addiction, which are your thoughts on what really causes addiction. And then secondly, how can people heal from addiction? And specifically, since you teach mindfulness to people who struggle with addiction issues, the role of mindfulness in that healing process. But I I do want to begin just with giving people some bit of context for your background. So if you don't mind sharing a little bit about your own background and, and how you came to be teaching uh, mindfulness practices to those who struggle with addiction? I'm sure our audience would love to hear that.
2: A great question. So a bit about my background then. Okay. I first kind of became aware of mindfulness during the 80s. And it was through like practicing martial arts, particularly Kung Fu. A lot of these martial arts, they were actually, they were kind of influenced. They came from countries like China, where there was a Buddhist influence and you know this application of kind of mindfulness, which I kind of see as this awareness of the mind, being able to see the mind in this more objective way, uh, was very useful in regards to martial arts. That and it was kind of similar to what people in the West like now talk about as flow state. In China, they had this idea of uè, this effortless action. That if we were just kind of focused on, you know, this more objective view of say, the martial art movements, we perform much better. And that's sort of where I came across it initially. I also sort of around that same time, there was a book out called The The Way of the Peaceful Warrior by by Dan Millman. And I remember reading this as a kid and and he talked about, you know, how our mind was deluding us and how we needed to get this more objective view on our mind. And that really resonated with me as well. At that period in my life, you know, there's a lot of stress. I was very sort of uncomfortable with myself and it was kind of the added stress because my, my parents' marriage was falling apart. And I was basically looking for anything that would help me, me cope better with that. And ideas like mindfulness kind of really, you know, it grabbed my attention. Around that time, I kind of also got into meditation And what I found with meditation, I had quite a a bit of beginner's luck with it and I was able to get quite deep. But unfortunately, that kind of led to a big misunderstanding. I I started using meditation as a way to kind of uh, escape my life rather than a way to fix my life. And also around this time, you know, I also came in contact with alcohol and alcohol seemed to kind of offer a kind of much more quicker fix. Than the meditation so i kind of you know got heavily involved in that and i of you know for the next two decades you know my, my life revolved around alcohol but i always remembered that early contact with meditation and mindfulness and i, and I kept on coming back to it so that was my, my kind of first introduction and um, with alcohol alcohol really kind of i started to suffer from it very quickly you know i hit my first rehab at 19 at 24 25 i ended up on the streets of london homeless and um, it just a really kind of, despite this kind of initial potential, it's, seen, you know, it's, its initial promise, it really kind of ruined my life. But every time I kind of get to stop, say, with the help of going into some type of rehab or something, I would immediately kind of get back, you know, looking at mindfulness as a way to help. So that's like how I initially came to, uh, you know, in contact with it. Then when I first started to start teaching was around 97. And what it was, I managed to get my life together enough to get into nursing training, and I started training to be a nurse. And it's around that time, well, a few years before, I started getting into Tai Chi. And I kind of realized that, you know, training to be a nurse could be quite stressful, and that mindfulness might be useful in helping people deal with that stress. So I started um, teaching mindfulness to student nurses, uh, using kind of martial arts as a way of kind of grounding ourselves. So that's how I kind of really initially came into it. Excellent.
1: Very interesting. And then I saw when you were really interested in kind of trying to get serious and and grappling with your addiction issues. And I know I'm fast forwarding a bit here through some of your bio, but you actually did a stay at a temple in Thailand, right? That specifically taught meditation to people with alcohol issues. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Well, exactly. There was a few. What happened was in around 2001 you know, I was still struggling to, to deal with my addiction problems. And I ended up in Thailand and I had this great idea that if I could ordain as a monk, all my problems would be over. So, But I kind of realized as well that it would be kind of maybe a bit wrong for me to ordain while I still had an active addiction. <laughs> so what do I do? I kept on trying to stop. and What I do, I go on these meditation retreats to help me stop and i did quite a few i did a few of them one of them was at wat rampong in, in, in chiang mai and that proved to be a big turning point for me um, it was a 26 day retreat and it was quite a, have you heard of the one at wat rampong i
1: have heard of wat rampong but i didn't know that they specifically had something for people struggling with alcohol i just heard it was a good place to do a meditation generally
2: yeah. Oh, no, there, there one wasn't. I was kind of just turning up at these places. So there was just a normal retreat, but it's quite an intensive one. It was a 26 day retreat. And you start off, you know, I went in there in withdrawals, and you start off with 10 hours of meditation and you build up to, to By the end of 26 days. You do what's called a determination where you, um, you know, you meditate without stopping for 72 hours. Uh, yeah, for 72 hours. And after that experience i kind of you know i i did taste this kind of uh, freedom that i'd always been looking for and you know i did drink again after that you know i kind of i wanted to test myself and failed <laughs> miserably but i, I have a definite taste of the way out during during that time and two years later i ended up in another temple called Wat tam kabak which is a, a temple specifically you know aimed at people with addiction problems and that's where i kind of finally uh, ended my addiction.
1: Fantastic. That's a great story. Uh, it's always nice to hear when you have a happy end to these stories, because unfortunately, many people don't. And and now you've spent a lot of your life since then, I believe, teaching mindfulness to people with addiction. Is that correct?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, well, I mean, initially, I kind of, you know, for the first few years, people would contact me and because I'd written a book about my experience. It's called Dead Drunk. And people would contact me and i started off with sort of skype sessions and then i got invited to teach at the rehab where i've worked for the last few years you know teaching this more full time
1: that's great paul that's really great so i'd love to start getting into your thoughts on what causes addiction i mean i know that there are <laughs> it's a very heated topic and undoubtedly there are many answers and it's different for different people but if you don't mind walking us through what you think sort of the most powerful, explanatory causes are. I'd love to hear your thoughts.
2: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that already. There are lots of views on this and I can only kind of give my my understanding. Or, you know, when I say it was the way of looking at things that helped me deal with it, and it's not necessarily the right way of understanding for everyone. But having said that, so one of the things that I loved about Tamke where I finally got sober, I'd kind of been around, I tried a lot, a lot of things to stop drinking. You know, during my nurse's training, I became obsessed with all the research, you know, I was really into the research. I was really into kind of all of these, you know, different ways of fixing my addiction. And you know, I had all of the theories, I was really kind of attracted and I moved from one theory to the next about what causes addiction. The thing about, you know, Tam Krabok is it offered me something very, very simple. And basically the, the, the idea was that the reason we take, we turn to drugs. Is because for some reason we're uncomfortable. That uncomfortable, you know, feeling arises from this having lost our weight away some, our, our somehow, and it's that feeling of discomfort of not being comfortable that drives the addiction. And really, it can be as simple as that, or at least it, it was for me.
1: I just realized one thing we should do before we should actually go further because, and I want to explore this line of thought more. But we should actually define for people what is addiction like. What is the distinction between someone who's you know, abusing alcohol and someone who is an addict and perhaps even someone who's an alcoholic, if you view those as different terms?
2: For me, the, the term stop being so important and I I'm know it doesn't really answer your question. I mean, a simple thing, you know, if, if we feel that something is destroying our life and, you know, and, and we can't stop it, that's a kind of common ground that we can agree with what addiction is for a lot of people. And um, just because otherwise we can kind of, you know, we can really get lost in what am I, am I not. And the Buddhist idea, you know, for me with of of craving, you know, in the dependent origination, when he talked about this definition of craving and addiction is this kind of very strong craving. It's this that it's like our attention has been hijacked by, by, by certain kind of this, uh, stimuli. In this case, you know, in my case, alcohol, that, you know, our attention has been hijacked in this very, very powerful way so that we keep on coming back to it. So that'd be, you know, one way to kind of understand the the driving force behind it. But I think, you know, it, it's simply, and I find this with my clients, it's simply that we're basically a problem looking for a solution. And these drugs can can seem to offer a solution and we get stuck there until it becomes too painful to kind of remain stuck there.
1: You know, part of why I ask is I am reading the work of Dr. Gabor Mate at the moment. And yeah. I'm sure you're familiar with him and and he's certainly a brilliant guy and I'm I'm enjoying it. I'm only a bit into his book so far, but I'm actually pretty far into the research section of In the Realm of the Hungry Ghost. And something that he's really big on is the role of trauma in causing addiction. And I know there's sort of a, a lot of talk about trauma right now, at least in the United States. And the, I think there's growing awareness around it and the role that plays in addiction. And I think that's something that's really... Worth being talked about. And I think Mate's research definitely shows that people who are the victims of trauma are disproportionately more likely to become addicts, whether it's heroin or other drugs or alcohol. But I guess part of me thinks, you know, as someone who, you know, struggled with substance abuse problems myself and didn't go through childhood trauma, I also know that that can't fully explain the reason for a lot of. Other people. And so I'm just sort of wondering, you know, and I'm leading you into this because I also share a Buddhist worldview on a lot of things. And I'm so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about really what else causes addiction aside from trauma. And perhaps how do your views as someone who has a more Buddhist background differ from other voices in the conversation that might come from an AA perspective or other prominent voices in this discussion?
2: I mean, I think the elephant in the room, and I kind of saw this a lot more from my nursing background as well, is there are some people who are just unlucky when it comes to, you know, becoming addicted to drugs. And they may have had pretty okay lives, but, you know, maybe they have an injury, you know, which requires them taking these very, very addictive substances like opiates. And if we kind of take these um, substances long enough, it is very, you know, we, we can sort of get, get hooked on them that way. And then I would I'd say they're more of the minority of people who end up with addiction problems, but they're definitely kind of there. And, you know, they may not be the same reason uh, of trauma that, that's kind of put them there. But also, you know, you know tra- trauma is one way that we, we sort of become very uncomfortable with ourselves, that, that makes us feel uneasy at ourselves. But yeah, there's probably lots of other reasons. And I'd say all of us have at least some level of discomfort you know, with with psychological discomfort. And it's just a matter of, does it become so bad that we do these desperate things to escape it? And yeah, trauma could certainly, you know, cause that, but it could just be, it isn't always what happens to us necessarily. It's how we kind of interpret what happens to us.
1: So true. A big thing that jumps out for me too is, one, just like what happened to like plain old fashioned hedonism. And by hedonism, I mean, Because this comes to the question, it's not just, there are many people, and I think Carl Hart's research, if you're familiar with him, shows this. It'll shock a lot of people in terms of the number of people who use very addictive substances like heroin and cocaine, and yet the number of people who actually become addicted are relatively small. And so what makes those people addicted? Now, some of those people suffer from trauma disproportionately, but also what about people in particular who struggle with delaying gratification? That their brains are wired that way isn't that a disproportionate cause?
2: Yeah, I mean that that could be one that could be one group, and and also you're going to have people who you know you know like people who are attracted to say very like amphetamine and cocaine those sort of drugs. I mean, it can, it, somebody of these can actually be trying to self medicate stuff like attention deficit disorder. You know, there can be a whole lot of things that make us feel uncomfortable.
1: Well, that's uh, to be honest, you know that I, I was thinking of that. I had that in mind. I actually have pretty severe ADD myself, and I'm reading part of Mate's work where he talks about ADD as well, and it goes hand in hand with it. I mean, something like cocaine would, would be self, a bad form of self-medication, but it would provide satisfaction to someone for ADD, and it's also, of course, a result of the ADD person's struggles in general with delay and gratification.
2: Yeah, that makes sense, wouldn't it?
1: Right. Can you say a little more? Have you worked with patients who have ADD, and what do you notice about that's kind of unique about their struggles or their relationship to, you know, substance abuse?
2: I suppose the unique thing is there tends to be kind of a a common reason given for things, and you know, we kind of have this this kind of it's it's tempting to try and pin all addiction down on the same on the same thing, and you kind of have to really you know understand where that person is coming from. So for me, you know, you know, it's tempting for me to always bring it back to this feeling uncomfortable around other people or, you know, uncomfortable, you know, what was going on in my life. But for other people, they may experience it kind of differently, you know, with this sort of attention deficit and maybe more that this, you know, inability to kind of, you know, stay focused on something, you know, this feeling of kind of being racy, that kind of thing. So it's kind of, it's different and it's important to like recognize where the person is coming from. You know, I do kind of boil it down. Like the, for most of us, there is this kind of, there is a problem that kind of needs to be fixed. And that puts us um, in that kind of situation where we will grab onto something like drugs. But yeah, you know, it is very helpful to kind of, to, to kind of meet that where the person is coming from, to kind of better describe their level of the discomfort to kind of led them in. I mean, and usually all you can kind of do is guide them to do that themselves to describe, you know, what was it like for them? That can initially be difficult for people when they first come to rehab because it may not be something that they've thought about in a long time. They just knew that they took the drug and somehow it made them feel better. They may not have realized that it made them feel better because it was like speeding up their mind or slowing down their mind or whatever the drug happened to, happened to be doing. But I think having that insight is, is kind of important of why, what was the initial thing that made it attractive? Like what, what made that thing grab our attention in such a powerful way? Right. I I feel like I'm kind of waffled there.
1: No, that's okay. You know, I've been reading about some of these common causes and theories. So I hope you don't mind me kind of just throwing a few out there and getting your take on them. And I'm fine if you don't accept them. (laughs) I'm just curious.
2: No, go on. I I mean, you know, because the end thing for for me was just keep it very, very simple. And that's what kind of worked for me in the end. And I kind of, you know, I, I, I kind of lost interest and this this sounds bad, seems I'm like working rehab. <laughs> yeah. But I kind of started losing interest in all the theories and to kind of bring it to something more personal. But yeah, I mean, I love to hear about the theories and I kind of love to talk about them. Unless the theory actually can do something, and I think a lot of like stuff like like Gabriel he does point to something we can do. Unless they actually point to something we can do, you know, the, the explanation isn't really going to be that valuable to us.
1: Right. Yeah, to Mate's credit, he is very focused on solutions as well.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: No, I like your answer. And it's a very Buddhist one as well, because, you know, Buddhism's all about saying you can, it's all about really coming to understand your mind, right? And your mind is constantly just creating stories about the way the world works. And they may be true or they may be not. And that's not to say they're all equally true or false, and some don't have more validity than others, but it's ultimately learning that it is still just a story even if you find one more persuasive than another and not to become so infatuated with the story making process itself.
2: Exactly. And, and that's that's where the kind of freedom comes is we start to see that, you know, this whole process so, and, and the kind of you know, the, the, the craving is, is very much part of this kind of story making thing because there's always going to be a big story behind it that's triggered about why we need to be doing these things, why we're still doing these, the, the, these things. I mean, and it's been able to see this in this more objective way that it's not something that I'm doing. It's just something that I'm actually experiencing. And, and that's so important because, you know, the force that kind of keep people trapped in addiction are incredibly powerful if they're believed. But when they're seen from this more objective standpoint, they just start to fall apart. You know, so one kind of you know strong example of this is, you know, when people relapse. What tends to happen is the is the brain automatically, you know, becomes very, very negative. And that negativity seems very real and seems very kind of, you know, that, you know, yes, I'm a loser, yes, you know, I you know, this I, I always knew this was gonna happen, that deep down, you know, I'm just this this drug addict who can never give up. That reasoning becomes the truth in our mind because of the way we're relating to it. But when we kind of start to recognize, no, this thinking is just something that's been triggered by something that's happened. It's a mental habit. And to start to see it that way, we can start to get free of it. You know, there's all of these mental habits and it's the the way these mental habits grab our attention that kind of keeps us suffering, that keeps us stuck. And But we can develop this ability to watch these things more objectively going to kind of see A causes B, and you know, this causes this. It's not that I'm doing it. It's not that I'm kind of, you know, so it's like, say, with, with, with depression, one of the, the symptoms of depression is negative thinking, you know, and, and that's a symptom of depression in the same way as a fever is a symptom of, of the flu. It's a symptom. But the problem is when people, you know, start experiencing the kind of, like the kind of uh, you know, the downward spiral into depression, they don't recognize that that negative thinking is just something that's being triggered. It's just a symptom. Instead, this, this identification with, with it. But when we learn to kind of take this backward step and just kind of see, oh, of course, this is arising. This is one of my habits that happens when this is there. You know this causes this to happen and we no longer kind of be be pulled along by it we can kind of see it from this very very different place in this free place and you see the exact same with cravings the the great things about cravings is they're so strong and that means by really starting to see them objectively we get this kind of great understanding that we wouldn't get otherwise And, and and the cravings you know addiction cravings become um you know a real gift because of course, you know, in your understanding, but you know, the craving isn't just about addiction. It's a it's a driving force of life that kind of keeps us trapped in suffering. So, anything we can kind of learn to break that craving of us is of tremendous value for our lives. And you know, you know, in, in my case, and it seems to be the case at my clients, you know, I, I always learn better through pain. And as once I was able to recognize the pain, I was able to let go of it. The problem is when you're not able to recognize the pain, you're not able to let go of it.
1: Yeah, you're kind of beginning to hint at something, at least this is how I'm interpreting it, that really gets at the heart of how a Buddhist view on addiction is different, which is that a lot of times I've heard people, when they talk about themselves, who recovered from something,
2: they're
1: locked into some pretty strong fixed terms and very firm worldviews. And one of these is this language about an addict. Well, I can't do that because I'm an addict or not an addict. And I'm not saying clearly that's the right decision for some people to just renounce because they can't drink in moderation. So, I'm not talking about that, but through people are not only addicted to drugs and alcohol, how about like people are what do you do when you talk about like food and sex? I mean, when you look at the number of people who have extramarital affairs, that would lead us to think that then the majority of people are Sex addicts, right? Or they're they're unable to control their sexual behavior. So instead of it being binary, craving is sort of more of a spectrum, right?
2: Absolutely. This is the thing, you know. You know like that way of looking at things, that way of you know being in recovery, and and that, that's helped a lot of people. I would I would never kind of you know discredit it it just didn't work for me in the end and it doesn't work for a lot of people you know that at least some people like me that doesn't work for because you know this idea of kind of you know that the craving is everywhere and addiction is just one of those cravings that kind of got us bad and the kind of you know we can kind of so, so in regards to say you know quitting my addiction I, I, I don't believe i did anything more to end my addiction after i finally quit I, there was no kind of recovery i just stopped You know, I not only gave up being an alcoholic, I gave up the whole alcoholism thing. I I sort of walked away from that because I kind of realized what was happening with me is, and this went on for years and years, it was this cycle, whether I was drinking or whether I wasn't drinking. When I was drinking, there was all this thinking about, um, you know, I need to stop drinking, I need to stop drinking, and all the kind of, you know, the turmoil that goes along with that. But then I'd eventually stop thinking. And then this new kind of torturer would take over the endless self improvement project. This person, you know, you're in recovery. You need to be doing this. You need to be doing that. I mean, you know, this was this constant. I was just replacing one type of seeking with another type of seeking. And I realized that the seeking was the problem, you know, and I had to be able to let go of the seeking. You know, as long as we're seeking, you know, so for me, this all boils down to contentment. I was looking for contentment and and it was only when I had contentment that I was able to fully kind of let go of these kind of, you know, addictions, you know, because it's only the seeking mind that's a kind of sucker for that kind of things. But I kind of eventually kind of hit me that there was no way I was going to end seeking by continue seeking. And, you know, to be able to kind of let go of all of that and to kind of realize that that seeking it is being driven by craving. It's, it's just constantly craving for things to be different than what they actually are. That That's the key of suffering. And that can just as easily, you know, continue after we quit an addiction in, in other ways, constantly trying to fix ourselves. And I used to go, I stopped during the 90s, I actually stopped drinking for two years. But because of that constant, you know, self-improvement project, I got to the stage where, you know, I said, you know, I'd much rather be drinking than, than this constant kind of uh, recovering. It just seemed absolutely endless. And this exact same thing can apply to, you know, like practicing Buddhism. It, Buddhism could easily become, or meditation can easily become another form of seeking. Like we kind of have to know when to get off that ride to when to kind of, you know, or at least that's the way I see things, to, be, to, to know I'm content now. Okay, I can stop seeking now.
1: Yeah, this is very big in sort of not only Buddhism and yoga and new age circles. I I actually want to unpack this idea further because I think what you said is gets at a heart of wisdom from Eastern traditions, but it's also one that's very easily misinterpreted by Westerners because we come from a goal-oriented achievement background. And then when people talk about stop seeking, you think, well, what's that mean? What am I supposed to stop? setting goals. So can you clarify what the distinction is or why that's a misconception?
2: So yeah, stop seeking is, is not really about stopping goals. It's about stop seeking to fix ourselves, to stop this endless attempt to make ourselves feel better. There's a quote, and I believe it was by Wayuwe. I've never been able to find a quote again, though, but I think it was by him, but it was a great thing he said, like, how can we dig ourselves out of a hole we've never been in? And that, you know, it's this constantly trying to fix ourselves that is at the the sort of core of our suffering. And maybe if we stop trying to fix ourselves, if we can find out that we're fixed, it's not that, you know, we can still have passions, we can still have all of these things we do, but it's this specific seeking that's all about making ourselves feel better. So long as we're kind of trying to make ourselves feel better, we never actually get to feel better, in my
1: experience. I'm totally with you, and that makes a lot of sense. And at the same time, I'm always trying to grapple with integrating really wonderful wisdom from the East with wisdom from the West as well and and try to reconcile those. So let me throw out an idea and see if you can help me figure this out for me. Perhaps you don't subscribe to this view, but I also really like the idea of the work of Carl Jung and Jung talks about in order to live a fulfilled life, you know, to rise up to our destiny, what we have to do is to integrate our shadow. That That is what the process of self-actualization and the purpose of life is in a lot of ways. it's It's to become whole. And this actually has its roots in really basic, I think, religious concepts from around the world. So the origin of the word religion comes from the Latin word religare, which means to bind or to connect. And so in that sense, religion is about connection or making us whole. Yoga, the word yoga comes from the root word meaning to yoke or union. And I do think there's something that Jung, who was very fascinated in sort of the the timeless archetypal truce that pervaded all these cultures, really put his finger on when he talked about integrating our shadow and becoming whole. But that does require a process of action, right? Of actually doing something there and kind of, can you reconcile that with an Eastern worldview or do you have a a problem with Jung's approach?
2: Not at all. What I would say say about that, because I think, yeah, I mean, we have to be able to kind of integrate all of these different parts of ourselves. And there can be tremendous problems if we don't, because like that shadow side can kind of play out and cause lots of mischief. But what, what, where this kind of, you know, from what I've experienced coming from is to see that from this, to see it from emptiness, to kind of see it that these things that the, the shadow side, I, I'm no more choosing the shadow side than I am any other side. And to see that just this play of things is happening by itself. And it's that that allows us to actually look at it. It's when we can look at it without taking it so personally, that's where the, the real chance of progress. Because the, the, the reason we can't look at our shadow side is we take it so personally. We see it that, oh, you know, this means I'm a bad person. This means I'm this terrible person. But when we actually see, no, these are just these forces that I've got no, uh, that I'm not literally controlling, that, I, you know, they're just, it's the, the play of the universe, wherever you wanted to kind of, you know, describe it, you know, that it's just these processes and being able to see them from, from you know, that, that way, then we're open to all of this. You know, what I've found is, is this is all leading to a kind of state of open awareness where nothing is denied, nothing needs to be hidden. The, the, the only reason things needed to be hidden was because we were taken too personally. And we are trying, you know, there was this need to protect an ego that never really existed in the way we thought it did.
1: I like that answer. And it also made me think of, as you were describing it, a lot of what causes our suffering. You know, it's it's not the event in the past, which is now past. It's our story about the event in the past. And that story itself is Absolutely. Is, is empty. You know, it's just a story. Yes, it's
2: it's just triggered. And, and, you know, if that story was so important, why are we thinking about it all the time? <laughs> Why is it only this kind of story from the past only arrives at certain periods, at certain moments? You know, it's not that we're going, oh, you know, you know what? I haven't felt guilty about being an asshole 10 years ago to, for, for for ages. Maybe I should do that today. It, it's not like that. It just arises it by itself and it's triggered. And this is, you know, and, and this is very important for people to come to rehab because, one of the they talk about this kind of emotional roller coaster that people experience when they give up drugs, you know, your, your mood and your emotions kind of go all over the place. What that process can do is kind of trigger all of these old memories, like trigger all, all of these feelings of guilt. But it's not that these stories, these feelings of guilt are so, you know, they're just being triggered by this kind of, you know, changing body state. And they kind of start to be able to see it more from that way. This ability to not take things personally, that's where where the freedom is. And they kind of see all of this is kind of just happening. Like, you know, things are being triggered and then they appear, you know, anything that kind of, you know, gets our attention feels really, really important, but only because it's got our attention, not because it is important necessarily.
1: Right. And a lot of times the stories, I mean, yeah, they're a reflection of either us being unfairly hard on ourselves like harder than we are on other people or it's the opposite you know it's a result of our narcissism and and self-absorption either way it reflects a very distorted perspective
2: absolutely and they're just at best interpretations interpretations of something that has happened a story about something that's happened and these interpretations can actually change over time and they can change depending on our moods we can sort of have the same stories and even the same stories can kind of seem different depending on our mood no but i i do agree that you know it's definitely something that we do need to be able to face and i i would say you know for you know if there is a kind of um recovery process, if you want to call it a long process, it's over time developing this this disability to be able to look at ourselves without turning away. And, you know, for me to be able to do that, I had to not take it so personally. And that's where this whole teaching of kind of uh, emptiness can be so useful.
1: Right. Yeah. To be able to be present with what is, even if it's unpleasant, instead of checking out, instead of I'm going to get high again or drunk again, or, or even just being dead sober, but engaging in just some other kind of avoidance or bypassing strategy.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Because I mean, these things can, you know, so long as we're taking them so personally that they can easily, you know, drive us back to the drugs or, or whatever habit it was, because you know, they make us feel, you know... They can make us feel like we've kind of done too much damage, or that we're somehow damaged beyond all repair. And that, you know, that you know, the, the saddest thing with me at the end of my drinking is I really start to believe that perhaps this is the best I can do in life. And that can only kind of, that kind of thinking can only happen when we, when we're, you know, really locked into some horrible thoughts about ourselves that we, we started to believe. And the the great freedom for me was, you know, because... I had these multiple, multiple relapses, and I see this with clients as well, is that you do eventually, you know, lose hope. You think that there is this kind of, you know, this person traveling through time, this ego traveling through time, who's real. That's who I am. And that cannot change. And the great, the great kind of, you know, understanding that comes is that you know, there was no such a thing. And and because there's no such a thing, because there's no solid, you know, self there, it can change. It can can change, you know, because. If all our life is, is what's grabbing our attention. And we become much more aware of what's grabbing our attention. And, and it's that grasp and that craving is all about what's grabbing our attention.
1: Yeah. I, I, I want to ask you something on that note. You know, M- Mate talked about in terms of what tends to be grabbing people's attention. One thing about addicts that he noticed is that people are very self-absorbed. You know, they're very into their own thoughts, into their own problems, and I'm wondering if you could talk about that.
2: Absolutely. And, and this, this is, again, is, is one of the key key components of it, you know, that at the heart of addiction of self-obsession, self-obsession it's that self-obsession, that taking, you know, these thoughts so seriously that makes us, um, you know, such easy prey for addiction. And it's the loosening up of that, it's, it's taking, you know, taking everything less personally that kind of, you know, leads us in the other direction. And, you know, I, I kind of say, I, I kind of, you know, talk about clients when they come to Hope, you know, where I work. And this is the way you refer to me. I was a very high maintenance person. And what that meant was that, you know, all of my attention needed to be on me. Now, I, I didn't see it that way because I, I always took self-obsession was about, you know, loving yourself too much. I didn't realize that hating yourself too much was the exact same thing as as, as loving yourself too much. It's about two sides of the same kind. And it was this absolute obsession with you know my thoughts and what i thought about myself that's what was making my life absolute hell and my journey was about becoming this very very high maintenance person that had to be kind of constantly focused on himself to becoming a very low maintenance person that didn't really that 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 much attention was no longer needed and you know to me that's if there is a journey to be made that's that that's the one that kind of needs to be made because when you no longer need to be fixing yourself all the time, you know, that, that pull towards addiction just stops being there. It's only someone who's a... You have to be into kind of, you know, needing something to fix your business to kind of go for these things.
1: Right. Okay. And, and that that's sort of a segue into... it's. I want to explore one more potential cause before we move on to what heals people and, and how they recover. But I think in a lot of ways, the journey... And maybe I don't, Maybe this is actually part of the segue to what heals people, but it's the journey out of yourself and your own problems into other people. I think the one thing that people are talking about now is, in. If you're, I don't know if you're familiar with Johan Hari, who wrote Chasing the Scream, but he's written this new book on addiction called Lost Connections. Yeah, he's someone we're checking out. I think Chasing the Scream is the best book on the drug war there is. So that's a good one. And he has this new book on, on addiction. And also depression and mental health, it's not just addiction, but depression too and yeah, and he talks about what really is at the root of so many of our problems is a lack of connection, you know, and just as you were talking about that it it made me think about you know the of course, the natural corollary to being in your head is you're stuck in your own problems, and I think in so many ways, like it's like if um uh, what people need in order to like, whether they suffer from addiction or mental health issues, is just like getting out of your head, like go volunteer, go help other people, go see what other people are going through. So I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit, but I'm also, you know, I'm keenly aware as I even ask it that, you know, you're a nurse and you are someone who was helping people all the time, yet you were struggling with your addiction throughout that process. So if you maybe... If you maybe want to tell me why it's not that simple, I'd be curious to to hear your perspective on that.
2: Helping others and, and turning my attention to others was a, a major turning point for me. So, you know, during you know, as I say, during my I ended up in a second or third second rehab you know, in my mid twenties. And while I was there, the, the counselor, I don't remember much. I was in this rehab for a year. And I don't remember much about what happened there. But so the one thing that really you know, changed things for me was when the counselor one day said to me, you know, you think about yourself too much and maybe you should focus on somebody else. And she made me do voluntary work. And I was working with these kids with learning difficulties. And it was because of that, that I became a nurse eventually, because I got such relief from that, from that having my attention, you know, pointed outwards. Because I, you know, because it was when I looked at this guy, it was so obviously that his he had a much harder. He was hoeing a much ro- much harder ro- what you got road than I was. His life was far more difficult than anything I'd have to face. Because like, this guy, he was also called Paul. He was the same age as me. He was twenty five, but he has like severe disabilities. He couldn't do anything for himself. And you know, I spent time with this guy, and it absolutely changed me. And you know, it did start to open me up. It did start to kind of move my attention outward. So yeah, I'm definitely all for that. But the thing about connection, connection, we are absolutely and always connected. All this sense of of being separate is is mistaking the thoughts. It's it's just kind of this focus on our thoughts that makes us feel disconnected. And I used to think, you know, the disconnect was because of the way other people acted. It was because of the way other people treated me. And that if I could only get them to treat me in the right way, then I could feel connected. And then I had this uh, experience one time in meditation. And what it appeared to be was a past life experience. Now, I don't claim it was a past life experience. I'm very kind of skeptical about this kind of stuff. But it was very, very revealing, this vision. And what it was in this vision, I saw myself as this Benedictine monk in the 19th century. And i had been this, you know, quite pious person but for some reason i i got to the end of my life and i was in this community this religious community and i'd managed to kind of fall out with everyone else in the community and i absolutely you know hated them and i was in extreme mental distress in this vision now because of this kind of feeling of being so disconnected and it felt you know that my whole life you know had been a kind of a, a big kind of waste despite all of my you know sincere endeavors to be kind of holy Now, after I kind of had that vision, I didn't kind of waste too much time wondering if it was real or not, but I could kind of see that it really was relevant to my own life and the kind of discomforts in my own life and my own feeling of disconnection. And because I could see this other person, it was much more easier to be objective. And I kind of thought, well, what should this guy have done? And what I realized it was that the sense of disconnection was coming from him. It was something that he was doing that he needed people to be a certain way for him to accept them. And that was just wasn't true. He could accept them if he just let go of those ideas. And that, you know, that was a real kind of turning point because I could kind of see that that's what I was doing. I was wanting the world to be a certain way so I could feel connected. But that's not what it is. Connecting is something we do when we kind of accept things as they are, not how we think they should be. That's interesting.
1: So let's segue that to talking about what really shifts people from turns the tables form in terms of uh, helping them get on the road of recovery. And perhaps we can start, I know a common theme with a lot of recovery programs, not just 12 step is sort of the importance of a support group. So there, there's something definitely to social connection there, but, but please sort of lead us from there to what you really think are the most decisive factors that really are important for people to recover.
2: Okay. I mean, you know, for my, you know, support groups didn't, didn't really, I kind of walked away from all of that myself, but I can certainly say it certainly does, you know, very, very beneficial for the clients. I see like that they really benefit, but my own journey, that was something I kind of needed to, you know, leave behind. Cause I, I kind of, as I say, I not only gave up the addiction, I gave up the whole paraphernalia around that. And I kind of personally needed to do that. And I was in a position where I could do that I kind of, um, it's kind of seen enough to be able to do that. In regards to kind of, you know, helping clients, one of the, the problems people have is that, you know, and, and this is certainly my case, when we come to, to rehab, we usually come for a kind of what's called negative reasons. We usually, you know, it's because of the, the pain, you know, maybe it's the, it's the pain of losing a, a, a relationship or, that, you know, we have these health problems or, you know, we're losing our job or our reputation. And that pain is enough to kind of get us into rehab and it's enough to get us willing to take that chance on something new. But unfortunately, that, that pain isn't, isn't such a great long term motivation. Uh, it, it doesn't, um, you know, because eventually, you know, you may not care anymore if your wife leaves. You may have these days where you may not even care about dying, you know, and you may be having such a bad day. So those negative reasons aren't really enough and you know, so those negative reasons put us in a, in a state where we're willing to take a chance, but we kind of, we need evidence before, you know, of something better before we can really commit often. And so, you know, what I try to do with with mindfulness is kind of get people to experience something better, you know, which I call open awareness. You know, you don't have to be able to be, you know, you only have to kind of experience that once or twice to kind of, that the mind gets it. And the mind sees something in it, and that's what kind of happened to me. I just had these glimpses of it, and you know, it was like it grabbed me, and I could saw that you know, you know the way in the in the four noble truths, the the third noble truth, you know, there there is this this path away from you know from suffering. I always wondered why did they bother saying that? I, I thought it would be it would be obvious. And it took me years to realize that you have to, you know, you have to have some evidence. You have to, you don't have to be free, but you have to have a taste of freedom. So, you know, a lot of what I do, you know, with the clients at Hope is the least, if I'm just them to taste that freedom, you know, to really see that it's possible, then our attention can kind of direct towards that. And I think, you know, it becomes easy. We didn't have to kind of do this huge effort to become addicted in the first place. Now, I don't remember, you know, doing any practices to become addicted. It's just somehow, you know, my mind saw an escape and I latched onto it. And it can kind of, the same thing can happen when we offer a valid escape, that the mind can just get it and we're sort of, we're drawn to it. So I think, you know, that's very, and I think, you know, all kind of, you have to eventually just provide the evidence. Out of desperation, we'll take take so much on faith. We'll say, yeah, you know, I'm willing to give this new life a chance in the hope it will be better. But if the the signs of that aren't kind of forthcoming, we just give up. And that could be years. I mean, for me, it took a few years before I really, like, you know, back in the 90s, you know, just I was willing to kind of keep on going, keep on going, but eventually just say, nah, this isn't take me to where I need to go. And I, I know what, what, what at least will have some effect.
1: Right. You know, it, it struck me as you were giving your answer on not having a support group. It actually was the same for me. I just It was something that I I needed to do on my own or it just worked for me that way. And it was very kind of simple. It was doing yoga and some mindfulness meditation and just really realizing that, you know, I was, I was reading sort of the basic tenets of Buddhism and that, oh yeah, like the nature of things are so impermanent. I'm not going to find any kind of satisfaction in latching on to that, which is impermanent. Right. And I just sort of saw it and I let it go. But That seems to be very much an exception to the rule from what I understand, right? I mean, don't most people need some kind of support group or also do most people really see things on their own that easily or do they need something that really forces their hands like a rock bottom situation?
2: You're right. I mean, it does appear. And I would never, ever discourage anyone from sort of doing any of the 12-step groups or refuge recovery or whatever. I'd never discourage that. And, and yeah, you're right. Maybe, you know, it is only kind of, um, you know, I, I kind of, I'd done a lot before I got to that point, you know, before I was finally able to let go. And, you know, often when I kind of um, started teaching, when I first stopped the first year or so, I didn't really want to have anything to do with recovery anymore. And the reason I kind of put my foot in the water again was because at the end of my addiction, I was so desperate to stop. And I kept on being pointed back to the things that hadn't worked for me. I kept on being told, oh, you need to go back to your recovery group. And I kind of already knew that like, didn't work, but that was the only kind of message I was getting. And so I wanted there to be a voice that says, well, no, you know, there are other options, you know, maybe only for a minority of us, but maybe for the minority of us, it is very important that that message is there and that that kind of uh, someone is pointing to that. And what I was expecting, you know, when I, when I started working in rehab was that there'll be very, you know, there'll be a lot of people like me and there will be a lot of people that, you know, that didn't need the of 12-step programs. But, you know, like what I found wasn't that, you know, that a lot of people, you're right, a lot of people do need these things. And that came as a kind of shock to me because I was going to go in there and revolutionize everything. And it just wasn't so. Some of us, you know, we, maybe we get a taste of something somewhere along the line. And I think that taste I got as a kid, you know, that stayed there and it, it kind of allowed me to kind of, it grabbed me. And so I'd already kind of had that taste. and I had other experiences throughout my life as well, where I had this taste that, of you know, it was kind of... Um, but once they could find a way to get to that you know it was kind of game over for these other ways of escaping if that answers the question
1: so i want to ask you something actually on this note and i know it it's, might still be controversial but it's increasingly sort of discussed within the role of addiction is sort of the role of psychedelic therapy that's become more and more prominent in the us at least and that was something for me personally was psychedelic experiences that shortly before I gave up drinking that really allowed me to step outside of my normal mode of viewing things and really get some perspective on my behavior and shortly thereafter to kind of let things go. And we're hearing a lot of research now in terms of people using ayahuasca you know, to give up drug and alcohol addictions. We're hearing in particular some really powerful stories about Ibogaine a lot of people using Ibogaine to effectively get off of opiates. And this is actually one of the original uses for LSD in the 50s before it became you know, politicized as part of the counterculture. But I'm just curious what your perspective is on the use of psychedelics to help people.
2: Adrian, I was kind of expecting you to ask me this question and I wasn't looking forward to it. And <laughs> I get asked this question a lot. <laughs> and you know it's okay if you don't believe in it oh no no yeah. it's not It's not that it's, it's not so much that like here's my kind of five cents or, or, or however you describe it and um, because like little clients will often ask me this and i did try kind of lsd and stuff i think yes it, it, there's there's definitely examples of where it works i mean that's kind of you know beyond doubt and the problem i kind of have with it is the you know especially when people are already kind of stopped that Desire to want to do it. I would never encourage it because it's kind of, to me, the best ayahuasca could maybe do, and maybe I'm wrong here, is to give us an experience, maybe a very, very important experience. But, you know, experiences by themselves don't necessarily do much. I mean, I, you know, and in fact, it, it can lead to trying to recreate that experience and re chase that experience. And because of the nature of the way I was, I was kind of always looking for, you know, some way of, you know, escaping reality. And, you know, and, and I know ayahuasca is not about that, but, it, but I mean, it, it just seems that way to me. And I, I just, I don't know, I just, I personally wouldn't recommend it, but I'm kind of on the fence. You know, maybe it's, it's a fantastic thing, but I just wouldn't feel necessarily comfortable recommending it, especially to people who have already
1: quit. Are you familiar with the research of David Nutt by chance?
2: No, tell me more.
1: David Nutt, he's a professor at the University of College London. He even had a position in the last... I don't know if it was a labor government, it might have been a labor government, but it was around 2010. He was sacked basically for producing a report, I mean, a scientific report saying that it was very comprehensive. And what it showed was that it ranked all of the different drugs, including alcohol and tobacco, in terms of their various, how detrimental they were. And they, he measured that in a number of ways, how addictive it was, how detrimental it was to you personally, how detrimental it was to others in society. And the most detrimental drug by far was alcohol, especially when you factor in the damage to society. The least addictive drug was psilocybin mushrooms and number three on that list, not far behind was LSD. And so this is sort of what we're getting in terms of a lot of the research is that they're not, and that's not to say that people can't be attached to the experience, even if the drug itself isn't isn't forming a sort form of actual chemical dependency. But I guess one thing I would say to people In terms of looking at the research, and and I'm never cautioning anyone to do psychedelics casually for whatever reason, serious business. But to anyone, when you read the reports of what going through ayahuasca or Ibogaine is like, and I've done ayahuasca, I haven't done Ibogaine, I mean, it is just never something one would enjoy doing recreationally. You know, there's so much kind of physical discomfort and torment that I think that's part of the reason it lends itself less to a pleasure-seeking activity and more to sort of personal growth aims.
2: Yeah, I think maybe you're right. And I suppose what it all boils down to me, it isn't so much the drugs themselves and the nature of the drugs and it's why we're doing it. It's just why. And if we're doing it, you know, and I could see how very easily even something like ayahuasca could become a new form of seeking. That yeah, even though it's unpleasant, you know, there's lots of things that are unpleasant. But if we, if we keep on feeling this need to kind of fix ourselves, like one more vision quest, and then then I'll we'll have got it, it just kind of it could just perpetuate the, the seeking, and that's my kind of concern with it. Only, but it could be completely, you know, I don't know.
0: Well,
1: in the sake of being fair and balanced, I, I do want to agree with you and say I think that is what it becomes for some people, and this is why I think the discussion around integration and intention as well is very important. And a lot of things I think are missed when Westerners take things out of, or anyone takes things out of their original context, whether that be certain meditation or religious practices, or whether it be something like ayahuasca or certain psychedelic substances. If we look on how these were used in an indigenous context, whether it's peyote for Native Americans or ayahuasca for people in the jungle, you know, these were something that were highly structured and ritualized. And, you know, people weren't stealing their parents' ayahuasca and like getting drunk on it. You know, it was a sort of a rite of passage. And so I think there are safeguards that need in an in intention and, a, and an approach to it that need to be in place that perhaps today in our consumerist society that people don't have. So I do want to agree with you there and say that it is about how you approach it and work with these practices as well.
2: Yeah. And you're right. And I, and I, do, like from what little I know, I do know that the people who originally used it, like they, they, they you know, treat it with utmost respect. It was a very kind of sacred thing to be doing. It wasn't, you know, you pay for a holiday and go do some, Yeah, you know, it was kind of, you know, more, more controls were in, pla- in place. Like you were saying. Totally. And I'll tell
1: you part of the reason I asked was because, so I went and I, I did ayahuasca in Peru in May at a place where it was actually very well-structured and it was all completely focused on integrating ayahuasca with Buddhism. So it was really firmly rooted in kind of like your spiritual practice. And it was very intense. It was really cool. It was wonderful. I got so much out of it. And we did it eight times over two weeks, which was you know very intensive. And, and at the end of it, this other guy, from New Zealand who partied a lot when he was younger and I went up to each other kind of at the end of the ceremony when it was over. And we pretty much both said the same thing at the same time. We're like, I only wish I'd done this, you know, like when I graduated high school or when I was younger, because honestly, I probably would have could have avoided so much hard drinking and hard partying in my youth if I'd done something like this. And, And maybe that's just, you know, a fan, that's certainly a story. Maybe it's not true.
2: I, I, I know there's people like Sam Harris, like, like people like Sam Harris, who's kind of suggested that everyone could, should try, it, should, should, should be made to do it. So, you know, there's definitely, I can definitely kind of see where you're coming from.
1: Yeah. So I just wanted to throw that out there. No worries. And <laughs> I appreciate you answering the dreaded question. <laughs> and it's good to have a different perspective as well.
2: But a client, I always kind of been clients go, because I don't, you know, the kind of the, Say in the kind of the rehab thing, I'm not fully subscribed to the rehab kind of thing, but one of the underlying things is it would be a definite no, and I kind of feel uncomfortable. Because I, in my heart, I just want to say no, but I kind of know it's not that simple, and I know it does, it, you know, it does help some people, you know, of course.
1: Yeah, and it's totally understandable when people have a unhealthy relationship with abusing mind altering substances. On the surface of it, the fact that you would recommend another mind altering substances you know, paradoxical. I can understand
2: that. One thing I kind of, I do do with clients is, is, is I kind of, I do sometimes recommend dream yoga. and I mean, dream yoga can kind of provide this other way of kind of experiencing things very, you know, a different way of perceiving. You know, some people seem to be able to kind of, you know, you know, lucid dreaming that they can kind of, you know, this other sort of way of perceiving that way. And that seems to be a bit, a bit more, um, I know it's not the same, but it, it kind of maybe is safer and more of it. And to kind of, because one of the benefits to say stuff like dream yoga, lucid dreaming, is you kind of, Practicing mindfulness helps you do it. It's kind of a nice side effect of it.
1: No, I think lucid dreaming is fantastic. In fact, do you want to just tell people a little bit about kind of basic definition of what lucid dreaming is? And can you share a little more about how that might be helpful to people who are going through addiction issues?
2: So lucid dreaming is, you know, it's this ability to become aware in your dreams. It's basically an extension of that awareness that we develop, say, in mindfulness into the dream state. And with this awareness, it kind of it can give people it can appear as if you're you know have some control over the dream now one of the reasons this this can be helpful you know that I found my clients is you can actually start to see how great the mind is at creating very convincing things that it can create this whole world you know without even without any any inputs and this brain is this marvelous world creator, and you can actually get to see this and get to interact with it. And it's true seeing that so you get to start to see that the same thing kind of applies to the waking state that it too you know that we're not seeing the world as it is we're seeing the world as we're as we are as we're perceiving it as the the things we're paying attention to, and it can be kind of a, a recognition in it from like, you know the lucid dreaming another way you know that that can be useful is you know it can you know you talked about the dark side earlier it can be kind of a way to start interacting with that a bit more and and the stuff that we you know that we find hard to normally face to start um you know, turning towards that. I and mean, one of the things I started doing is kind of boring when I first, cause I start, started uh, lucid dreaming when I was on meditation retreats. It's actually just meditate. <laughs> I get lucid and dream and I just automatically just sit down and meditate. <laughs> so it's kind of boring. How, you know, I've
1: tried lucid dreaming a little bit and, you know, I, I haven't gotten there yet. You know, do you have any advice for people in terms of like, I've read a book on some of the tips, but sort of how you begin to become conscious or aware while you're dreaming. What are some techniques that helps?
2: Well, so so from the book, from the Buddhist perspective, it kind of all boils down to why are we not lucid in the dream? And we're not lucid in the dream for the same way as we're caught in this kind of dream that we don't question anything, that we don't have this questioning attitude to our waking state. So why would we have a questioning attitude to our dream state? And so starting to question, you know, starting to become more curious about our waking state can naturally kind of lead to this kind of uh, lucidity that, that it starts to appear in dreams because we start noticing more, you know. So that's one way. I mean, there are other techniques, There's some famous techniques, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of, like, you know, doing reality checks and stuff like that. And they can be helpful. They can help people, um, you know, you get into this kind of habit of checking reality. <laughs> Am I really awake? You know, you can kind of actually do checks that people like do things like, jump up and down or look at their hands and they get into the kind of uh, into a habit of doing that. So eventually they start doing it in their dream and they go, oh yeah, yeah, I'm dreaming. And that kind of makes them, makes them aware. But, you know, just merely becoming more, you know, aware of our daily life can just naturally lead to this kind of lucidity happening in dreams. One of the funny things is that happened with me, I don't experience um, lucid dreams in the same way anymore. And what I mean by that is, you know, for a while, it was just, you know, I'd become lucid and this feeling of control over the dream. But, but you know, with the kind of recognitions that I kind of, you know, I started to have is I don't actually have control over my waking life. So that idea of having control over my dream, I can see it's kind of, it's the brain doing it as well.
1: Yeah, I've, I've read about techniques around people noticing a red light. Looking at the hands is another one of them.
2: Yes. Well, they have a machine, don't they, that you can wear that... Right. I've seen that. Have you used that? And it flashes a red light or something. Doesn't. No, I've never. I've never kind of, you know, I, I did try doing things, doing the techniques and it, like, like, like you, they didn't kind of um, help me too much. And I've got to have much more luck when I just allow it to happen when it happens.
1: Okay. Interesting. I'll revisit it, give it another shot. <laughs> so what are some of... The other things, whether it's not just a technique, whether it's just sort of really hard personal things that people need to own up to that are really essential for people to recover.
2: I mean, so, see, the big, you know, you know, you, you know, the the 12 links of the dependent origination. You talk about it in Buddhism. Like the, f- the first link is ignorance. And, you know, the reason that ignorance is there is we we, we won't look. And this, this looking, and, it, and so the 12 steps groups and all of the talk about this importance of honesty. And this is the applies here as well to this willing to honestly look at what we're experiencing, you know, without that honesty, without that, that genuine willingness to look um, you know, we, we, we're not going to, we're not going to kind of free ourselves much. We just stay locked in because it's, it's, the, it's the ignorance job to keep us kind of locked in. And the only kind of way to rise above this ignorance is to be more honest with ourselves and to actually look at what we assume to be true. I mean, the biggest kind of ignorance, and ignorance is not meant to be as any kind of slight. You know, we, we tend to use that word as kind of an insult. It's not meant that way. You know, it's something we're kind of a victim of. But, you know, the biggest kind of ignorance is around this idea that I'm here controlling all of this, that I'm here, you know, whatever is happening is something that I'm doing. And, you know, the, the, the reason we suffer is that's not actually true. You know, and, and believing that you're in control of something, they're not actually in control of is inherently suffering causing because <laughs> they keep on banging our head up against reality. So yeah, honesty, yeah. And, the, and we kind of start with honesty wherever we can start with it. But sometimes that willingness, that willingness to say, look, you know, and I kind of, we have to be careful as well. So one of the things, you know, with honesty is, you know, a lot of dishonesty is there because we're not capable at this moment of facing something. And if you kind of just say something, okay, you just need to open up to everything. Just be honest to everything. You know, especially when it comes to trauma, the person could end up re-traumatizing themselves. What's important in the beginning is just that willingness to be honest. Not that you necessarily open up to everything right away. That, you know, that I'm willing to look. Not that I, that I look at everything right now, but it's this willingness. That willingness is the most important thing. That willingness is more important even than the practices. You know, because we can do the practices and if we don't really have that willingness, they won't really get us anywhere.
1: I was just curious, what can cause a shift for people and make them more willing, to be honest?
2: Well, for me, unfortunately for me, it, it seems to be, you know, what, what causes us to be honest for me, and it seems to be for a lot of people, is pain. <laughs> you know, it makes us willing to kind of ha- have another look. And if, if one thing, you know, addiction could be, addiction could turn out to be a gift if it gets us to do that, if it gets us to be honest with ourselves. And then, you know, it can all be more than worthwhile. You know, so this idea that you have in in Tibet, you know, great pain, great awakening, and, and I think there's a, there's a lot of truth in that, because you know we you know if things are going all right, we don't tend to to question it too much, but you know when we're suffering, it makes us more willing to have another look. So that's one of the things I yeah uh, I, I I tell you know clients, and and I think is important. Another thing in regards to meditation that I found, and this is a a big thing for me, I've actually kind of noticed that you know. Clients who kind of, who are really into the meditation and the clients who are not into the meditation, both struggle for often the same reason. So the ones who are really into it end up struggling because it just becomes, um, you know, it just kind of gets stuck in. it. And and often, and this definitely happened for me, is too much effort. This kind of, this too much effort and makes it, you know, hard to maintain. And the reason, say, with clients who struggle with meditation is that also they're, they're using too much effort. So it just seems too hard that really, you know, what we're trying to achieve is this very gentle, open awareness. And I kind of had to learn about this, this, this open awareness, you know, the the hard way through again, through pain, because all of that efforting, I used to meditate three or four hours a day for years. And I used to get these really bad headaches and everything. And I had to learn to lighten up because that's, so that efforting is seeking. And when, you know, for, for someone who's brand new and they're not really, you know, Kira meditation, when it's kind of explained to them that, you know, you just need to gently just sit there and just this gentle awareness, it's something that they can achieve. And with the people who, who are really get into it, you say, just, you know, calm down a little bit, just this gentle awareness, you know, it'll go much easier for them and you see much more. You know, we have to kind of, you know, one of the, the ideas, I love the kind of Japanese idea, you know, shikantaza meditation, just sitting. The turning point for me with meditation came when I started doing this thing called sitting there without knowing how to meditate. Anything I did knowing how to meditate, that would just be seeking.
0: <laughs>
1: right. That's a very Zen idea. We sit just to sit. We're not sitting for enlightenment. We're not sitting for some noble purpose. We're sitting just to sit.
2: Yeah. And then, like, you know, that's a, that's, a you know, one of the teachers that really influenced me was uh, Lung Pa Thien here, here in Thailand. And he, have you heard of Lung Pa Thien? He did the, the Mahasati no. meditation, the hand the moving meditation. And he was very much about this, you know, that because he tried, you know, like me, he tried these deep concentration practices. And he found that, you know, and I found the same thing that while these, these um, you know, entering deep states of concentration are incredibly pleasurable and they can really be, there's a lot to them. But by themselves, they're not necessarily liberating. That all you kind of really need is this more and more gentle awareness that you can maintain at all times. And it's moving towards this open, gentle awareness that you can maintain at all times. That's very achievable. And it's, um, it provides what we need. It provides the contentment. Right. And I think maybe, you know, you look at, with stuff like yoga and with Tai Chi and Qigong, I think one of the, the, the attraction things about it is we can start to kind of really experience that open, you know, awareness. That just being gently aware of the movements. We can start to, you know, really get that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Any kind of mindfulness-based practice. I was actually listening to an interview earlier with Noah Levine, and it might've been the, the actual host who said this, but he said that he had a friend who was struggling with an unhealthy relationship with marijuana. And he said, okay, I want you to just bring mindfulness to your practice of smoking marijuana. So if you want to continue to smoke, continue to smoke. But you know, when you crush up the buds, I want you to do it mindfully when you roll that joint. I want you to just do it very mindfully when you when you inhale it. I want you to just sort of be mindful with every puff and then try to maintain that mindfulness throughout your experience, in, at least up until the point when it begins to break down. And apparently the person did that for a couple months and then just had no interest in smoking weed anymore and hasn't smoked for 15 years since. <laughs> and and I, I think there is something... Yeah, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I, I did that. Myself. I was wondering I mean, uh, I if you find that to be effective to some extent, or is it not as effective with alcohol? What do you think of kind of that approach?
2: Um, it was something I did myself, and eventually it did kind of you know allow me to kind of see the reality of alcohol. See, what, 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 you know, so it's definitely I'm definitely you know it's it's, it's definitely worthwhile, but there is a, a kind of problem, especially depending on the drug. See, one of the na- the nature of these drugs is they kind of make us mindless. So with some, with some behaviors, you know, you can definitely, you know, really use that mindfulness, you know, right through the process of doing it to kind of gain insight around it. You know, with alcohol, it's kind of, it's a, you can still do it, but it's going to be less because you're going to be entering this period of being completely mindless. You know, it's harder to kind of, you know, to, to look at it kind of objectively. But yeah, it, it's certainly better than nothing. And yeah, and, and it, it, you know, you can see enough to convince you, even with alcohol, even with, with, with you know, I, don't, I can't really speak about other drugs, but you know, with alcohol, you can.
1: I had the same thought as well. I actually thought I could I could see it working with both, but I thought I could see that working better with marijuana, but with alcohol because it does just make you so mindless. I I saw the same sort of pitfall
2: there. And, and to me, it's like you know, I, I you know, we talked earlier at the beginning. we were sort of saying about these you know, the addiction of oh, the definition of addictions and why you know people should stop these things. But you know, I don't worry too much about that anymore. I I think. You know, the effect that drugs have on all of us, you know, the, the way they cloud our minds, these drugs, that really, it, ideally, nobody should be taking them. And that's why it's kind of one of the precepts, you know, that it, it, these things that cloud our mind are not good for us. A clouded mind is not good for us, especially if we're interested in being honest, especially if we're interested in kind of waking up that, you know, we these things, even a small amount. One of the, the things that happened to me after I, I told you that retreat in what Rampong. I decided to, I felt so free after that meditation, after that retreat, that I decided to test myself. And I said, okay, you know, I'm so free now. I could drink alcohol and just walk away. And I went to Hui He and I ordered a half a, a, half a glass of, of alcohol, of, of lager. And by the time I drank that, everything I'd got in the retreat was gone. My mind was back to, you know, all of the nonsense again. Mm. Just half, you know, one unit of alcohol. So, I mean, this stuff can have such a powerful, you know, influence on, on our ability to see clearly. So, yeah, you know, even when you kind of see that you don't want that, you know, you know, some people, the sad thing is, you know, a lot of people, they will stop a drug and there can be still this sense that they're losing out on something. And in fact, absolutely. When you start to really appreciate mental clarity and maybe, you know, I remember meeting people when I was younger who... And I could not understand them. They, they said, I don't like alcohol. I don't like the way it makes me feel. I don't like the way it robs me of the mental clarity. And I go, what the hell are you talking about? But the reason I was saying that is because I ne- I'd never actually experienced it. I didn't know what the hell they were talking about, really. And it's only when you really start to have this kind of, you know, this open awareness that you go, no, that's got nothing to offer me anymore. There's um I can't remember, one of the to, one of the, the the monks of Myanmar. I can't remember his name. He's quite famous actually. Uh, well, in the West for kind of teachings and stuff. And he had an addiction problem as well. And one of the things he used to do, and I would never ever recommend this to my clients, but he used to after his addiction, he used to go sit in bars and meditate in them, just to kind of you know to kind of see the kind of you know the folly in them. I wouldn't. am not. I would never recommend that. But I, I kind of I get that because my you know my. My relationship with bars, I, I, I go into them every few years. I know I, there's no attraction there whatsoever.
1: But it takes a while to get to that point for some people.
2: For some people, it did. I mean, I, I, you know, by the time I kind of you know hit Wat Tamkebak, I knew leaving there that it was all over. And that's kind of a very controversial thing to kind of say. But I, I, I kind of I, I, I felt like I'd seen the trick, and once I'd seen the trick, I couldn't be tricked by it again. And, and, and it's, it's turned out to be like the, the way it has been it's turned out to be true. And there were so many times, you know, after that, especially the first few years where I desperately wanted to escape reality, but it's hard. Alcohol didn't come up. It wasn't there anymore for me. I, I knew it wasn't an escape. And it's when we kind of start to see it that there is no escape in these things. We stop trying to use them.
1: Why do you say that was a controversial thing to say that you saw it immediately? I mean, because that doesn't strike me as controversial. I'm curious why you would think that.
2: Well, well it's this, there's, this, there's this idea that, you know, once an addict, always an addict and that you're always at risk of relapse. And I don't believe that. I, I just don't. That's not my experience. You know, I, I can see where that idea can be helpful, but I explain it this way. And I know this is a bit flippant, but I mean, it's the way I kind of explain it. You know, it's like, say, you know, we, you and me were 12 and, you know, it's Christmas time and I, I've kind of, you know, I've done some research and I've realized there's no Santa Claus. And, you know, I understand that it's just not possible for, I, mean, I hope you don't believe in Santa Claus, by the way, <laughs> but I've just kind of realized that, you know, there's, it's just not possible. There's no guy flying around delivering all these presents at the same time. It just wouldn't happen. Now, I meet you and I say to you, you know, there's no Santa Claus, you know, and, here's, and, and you go, oh yeah, you know, I don't believe in Santa Claus either. Now, imagine 20 years later, we meet up and you say to me, I've started to believe in Santa Claus again. And you, you kind of want to be careful because maybe you'll start believing in Santa Claus as well. I, I would say, no, you know, the reason you believe in Santa Claus again is because you didn't really get why you didn't exist in the first place, that maybe you were only agreeing, you know, there was no Santa Claus because it was too painful not to. It's not the same as kind of understanding why there's no Santa Claus. And that's kind of where I am with that. I, you know, I, you know it, it's just the kind of sense I have that it's just that that particular trick has been seen
0: through
1: yeah, absolutely. I mean, your experience, once again, certainly resonates with my own. I I gave it up for probably completely maybe a year afterwards. But ever since that time, you know, I have on many occasions have one or two glasses of wine. And there was never a temptation to have more than that. In fact, when I started to feel the buzz, I just sort of began to back off. I didn't like the buzz coming on. I, I would enjoy the taste of wine, but I didn't want the buzz. And now I'm at the point where I honestly hardly even have it at all. Not because I think it's wrong to enjoy it in moderation a little bit if it's not clouding your your consciousness. But I just now that I don't drink it, I'm so sensitive to it. And I find that even one glass can just kind of impair my cognitive functioning the next day. So I've kind of totally lost interest. But I agree. I think there's some people who can't touch it. And I think there's some people who have that experience and they're just, they see it for what it is. It's delusion and they're just free of it.
2: Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, I, I mean, the problem, maybe there are some people who, you know, can have even an occasional thing, but you know, where I ended up is why would I even want that, you know, because if someone sort of said to me and that's, you know, we're all different and, you know, if someone said to me, you know, you know, oh, there's a way for you to, you know, drink now and again, it just would zero interest there's nothing you know there's nothing there for me there's nothing in it for me anymore and that was the kind of realization
1: yeah i can certainly totally appreciate that i can totally appreciate that you know if there's someone out there who's listening who's struggling with some kind of substance abuse if you could give them one piece of advice what would it be
2: to trust themselves to kind of you know to 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 be willing to give themselves a chance And to not believe what their head is telling them, you know, this, the the problem with addiction is, you know, this is this ignorance and it's not our fault. It's the way the addiction requires us to see the world in a certain way. And to just to maybe be open to the idea that our current way of seeing the world is, you know, not correct. And maybe we'll need some help, you know, to help us see things differently. And, you know, if, if we can get the willingness to do that, but at the very least, you know, that could involve maybe, you know, going to rehab, maybe for some people joining a, you know, a 12-step group or something or right, refuge recovery. You know that, that, that willingly, willingness to kind of take a chance that there's something outside our own reasoning. Because I, I used to really kind of, uh, this is a question I ask myself many times, not only because I work in rehab, but I used to think, what could I do if I could go back to myself when I was like in the middle of addiction, what could I say to myself to make myself um, change? And, you know, it's difficult. And, and all I really could say is just to, to, to look more honestly, to look at your situation more honestly, and don't just believe, you know, that the way you're currently seeing it is, is the only way of seeing it. So, like, you know, the, most of, to start recognizing the pain of a situation.
1: How about for those people out there who are listening who aren't struggling personally, but someone that they love, friends or family is struggling with addiction or they're worried that they might be, their friend or family member might be, abusing yep, substances, what advice do you have for them?
2: I mean, to lay it out there, to let that person know, um, you know, things like interventions can be helpful. I mean, the, these things can, you know, people who wouldn't be, see, you don't, people who come to rehab, they don't necessarily have to be motivated right on day one. Some people do come in very reluctant, but they get, you know, they kind of get motivated somewhere along the way. And that can happen. So, you know, even you do your best to kind of encourage the person, but also, you know, there also has to be acceptance. And some people, you know, they're just not going to be what want to listen. And all you can kind of do is kind of see, say how you see things. And, you know, maybe, you know, do that in the form of some intervention where you get a few people to kind of, you know, to really try to hammer home to this person that the way they're behaving isn't good for them, isn't good for other people. It is difficult and you kind of really, there's no easy answer. It's a horrible situation for family to be in. It, it, in some ways, it's worse, I think, for families and friends because there's nothing they can do. Like they, they can feel completely hopeless to watch this person they love, you know, seemingly destroying their life. But another thing I would say to these people is there is always hope. As long as the person is still breathing, there's hope.
1: Yeah, there's always that balance there. I hear people say, you know, people, and I can certainly understand why people say this, people aren't going to change until they're ready to change, which implies maybe just sort of saying, hey, I'm there for you if you need me. And then there's the other sort of school of thought, which is talks about the need to confront the person and actually have some sort of hope of elevating their sense of Awareness, you know, how do people begin to know when to move from one to the other?
2: I mean, it's kind of it's funny, like you know, like in Buddhism we talk about the middle way, and it is kind of like this. I mean, like you know, letting the person have it, you know, it's worth a shot. But there comes a point when you kind of you have to recognize, you know, this this doesn't work. You know that you know, no matter how much I express my concern, you know, no matter how much you know we try to kind of you know motivate this person. To you know, get help. It just isn't working. And you know, at, the, at this moment, I just have to accept that this person is right now. And part of that acceptance may be that that person can't be around you anymore. You know, that person you know has to kind of suffer the consequences of of their behavior. And and, and it's a very very tough situation. And and you can only kind of each case kind of has to be judged on its merits, kind of thing. But I think it's certainly worth a try. Right. But you know, there's no guarantees.
1: Well, Paul, do you have a final parting piece of advice for folks?
2: Oh, yeah. In regards to that, I mean, it does kind of tend to be the case that, you know, with people with addiction problems, there's certain times when they're more open to being confronted than others. And with that, what I mean by that is people who who kind of feel, you know, maybe they have a very particularly bad hangover or they've really messed up and they're feeling full of kind of, you know, guilt, they may be more open to the idea of going to rehab at that point. So sometimes picking your moment can be very beneficial. Right,
1: the bad hangover would be a good moment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yes, it could be, but then but as we said, there's, there's no guarantee of anything. But people quickly forget. Yes, and as you have to kind of move move quickly. Well, Paul, this was a really
1: fascinating conversation. I want to thank you so much for your time and for you know sharing all of your insight and wisdom with our listeners and, and with me.
2: I've I've really enjoyed it, Adrian. I can. I can keep on talking about this stuff online. <laughs> it's something that it's, you know, it's, I love discussing because it's been so helpful for me. Well, we'll have to
1: have you back on. Definitely.
2: And I think at some stage, you'll be, you'll be appearing on our podcast.
1: I would love that. I would absolutely love that, Paul. Thank you very much for the invitation. Let's make it happen.
2: Let's make for it sure. happen.
1: <laughs> Do you want to share with uh, folks you know, a little bit about your book or where they can find you or, or the podcast that you host?
2: Yeah. So my own website is paulgarrigan.com. Um, the book I released was released quite a few years ago and it's called Dead Drunk. Um, yeah. And you find most things about me through, through my website, but also the Hope website. We have a, a podcast on there. That, uh, that's the Hope Rehab website. And uh, we kind of, you know, we, it's all based around like recovery, not just mindfulness, all the kind of different aspects of it. So we look at it from, you know, because the one thing I've realized, I've only got one, one view on things. And it, it may be right for certain people, but there's room for lots of views on things, and we kind of maybe need all of those views. I mean, the one problem I has is that I didn't seem to be getting many views, but thankfully now we're getting more and more opinions on addiction.
1: Excellent. Yeah, I think maintaining a large view and sort of holding our beliefs lightly and being receptive and open to the ideas of others is always a good practice, whatever topic we're discussing.
2: Yeah. Absolutely.
1: Well. Thank you again for your time, Paul. Really enjoyed it. And we'll be talking again soon.
2: Thank you. Okay.
1: Take care.
0: This episode has ended, but head over to hackingtheself.org to access all of the resources and links mentioned in today's show, as well as bonus content available exclusively to the show supporters on patreon.com. That's patreon.com slash hackingtheself. Thank you for listening to Hacking the Self. Optimizing physical, mental and emotional health through the prism of science, technology and spirituality.